Um, and I wanted to look at, I just wanted to comment on a, two diagrams uh, of Laplanche's, one about the formation of the ego um, out of the body ego, and one about the drive, the, uh, the differentiation of the drive from the instinct. Uh, <coughs> as Laplanche rethinks this in his, as it quotes, Copernican framework. Um, and they, they do bear on or have a relevance to, uh, uh, to uh, the play, to Oedipus. Okay. Um, <coughs> the, we considered in the seminars uh, the, 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 what Laplanche calls the uh, fundamental anthropological situation of the human being, the infant confronting the adult world on which it is uh, needy and dependent. Um, and he both picks up and develops, but also is very critical of Freud's uh, conceptualization of that, of that relationship. And indeed, the tendency for the relation to the other to be downgraded, marginalized, or even to drop out altogether um, uh, of Freud's account uh, <coughs> as he moves from a restricted uh, trauma-based theory uh, of psychopathology to a general theory of, uh, of sexual development. Um, and we considered th the role, uh, we went through Laplanche's account of the role of, um, you sit over there, uh, the role of the other, the adult other, uh, and, and the activity of the adult other, uh, under the heading of transmission and implantation, and of the infant's receptivity uh, <coughs> uh, and the way in which he wants to think this in relation to the question of translation. Um, okay. Uh, <coughs> and I think we spent a lot of time on that because uh, the kind of playing around with sort of semiotic algebra, S1s and S2s, sort of. Uh, was perhaps uh, more uh, puzzling than helpful. Um, but I wanted to say something about the, the two crucial, if you like, uh, byproducts of that, of that process of translation, receptivity in the first moment and translation in the second moment, um, because it produces uh, <coughs> uh, the ego and the drives. Um, out of something else. Uh, so it's a formative process, a, a process of differentiation. Uh, and there are two um, diagrams, uh, <coughs> one, one to do with the ego and one to do with the differentiation of the ego uh, out of the overall body, uh, uh, or skin ego, as Amzio calls it, and the other with the differentiation of the drive. I'll deal with the first one. Uh, uh, this says two blobs. <laughs> Um, uh, which is on page 135 of the, of, of the chapter. Um, there's blob number one, as it were, uh, which he just calls the body ego. So he's taking up Freud's idea. Though I think also, though he doesn't, I, I'm surprised, I, th I, I thought he did explicitly reference Anzur at this point. I think he does later. Um, but it's the body ego as, as surface, so it's very much... Um, uh, seen through the lens, so to speak, of, of, of Anzio's notion of the skin ego that we looked at. 
Okay. Uh, so the, the body ego in which uh, <coughs> the, uh, if you can talk about an ego at all, it is simply the receptive surfaces of the body, as Freud says. That's where uh, our, our experience of boundaries uh, and of um, containment uh, and of differentiation from an inside and an, and an outside begins in a very primitive way. Uh, <coughs> and which is the receptive surface, as Omzir underlines very much, in which uh, uh, messages and, uh, of a very uh, nonverbal, uh, tactile, emotive, affective way uh, impact on, uh, uh, on that body ego and on its periphery in particular. And it's that point where Laplanche locates his idea of the enigmatic signifier, okay? which is a, pr a pre-verbal, it may be a gesture, a tone of voice, uh, <coughs> a form of bodily contact between the nurturing adult and the dependent uh, infant, but which carries uh, a, a, a load of affect, a load of feeling, uh, and which is puzzling and enigmatic, not just because the infant hasn't developed forms of understanding or decoding or translation, uh, but because it comes from an adult who has an unconscious. And as Laplanche says in one of his um, sort of epigrams, uh, that the infant uh, that, can, uh, that in front of the adult awakens uh, the infant uh, uh, within the adult. Um, so there's something particularly highly charged about the adult-infant relationship uh, that, uh, that, uh, that allows a kind of, um, well, what he calls it, uh, uh, bungled actions, as it were, in which a conscious intention is overtaken by uh, unconscious uh, feelings and, uh, and uh, fantasies. Uh, now, how do we get from that primitive state of the body ego, which is all surface, on which, some, on which is implanted or impacted various things coming from the other, to the differentiation? And I have to draw it carefully because it's the two circles touch at a, at a, at a key point, okay? Uh, and the outer circle is, again, the whole individual. The ego is individual. The whole person, if you like. Uh, and this new formation, the ego agency. Um, and what gets from one to the other is precisely this process of of implantation uh, in the first moment and a, a sort of translation okay um, a carrying across Freud in that letter that I gave you uh, talks about a carrying across a, 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 a retranscription a um, uh, when he's talking about the body ego in the chapter that we looked at from ego and the id, he talks about a mental projection inwards of the bodily surface. Okay, so the formation of a, of a mental representation or self-image of, uh, uh, of the subject. Um, in the letter, uh, he talks about it in terms of a translation from which something will drop out. Uh, for every translation, there is something that remains untranslated. There's a remainder, okay? Uh, something is too hot to handle. It can't be 
processed, it's too highly charged, it's too uh, exciting or traumatizing or, or uh, um, disturbing in some way. So, a, and a metaphor, one of the metaphors that Laplante uses is that of metabolization, as when the body metabolizes food, takes in the good stuff and uh, expels uh, uh, what it doesn't want or it can't uh, handle. Um, uh, so, if an act of translation produces this mental self-image based, based on and built up out of uh, the various uh, inputs that have come from the other, uh, the enigmatic signifiers that have come from the adult, something has dropped out. Okay. Uh, there is the non-translated, the untranslated. Okay. Um, now, he's talking here about the ego as agency. Uh, and the, the word that he, Freud uses, instans, has in German, and it has in other European languages as well, French in particular, uh, a kind of almost legal or juridical connotation uh, in which the instans is somebody who stands in for, is the delegate of, uh, 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 is the representative of, um, uh, of a larger whole. Um, so the ego is, is a self-image that stands in for and represents the larger whole. So it has a double relationship, uh, Laplanche comments, uh, <coughs> and he uses um, the, the two dimensions that are central to structuralist theory. Uh, uh, usually um, the terms that he used are taken from rhetoric. The ego is both a metaphor uh, for the whole and a metonymy. Metaphor is governed by likeness. So in a sense, it's a self-representation. Uh, it's in a self-image. Uh, uh, it's uh, And it is based on um, uh, the surfaces of the body and the way they're mapped. Uh, and uh, this mapping of the body uh, uh, gives the in the infant, uh, the beginnings of a, of a sort of self-representation. Uh, and the, the concrete example I, uh, I would use from the material we looked at is that moment uh, I underlined in seminars from the case study of Little Hands, where the mother is carefully powdering around his genital area and taking great care not to touch it. Uh, and, he become, and he notices that. He notices her not touching, as it were. And you have that kind of um, casual, rather charming little exchange. And he says, why don't you put your finger there? And she says, oh, that would be schweinisch. And he just laughs and says, oh, but it's great fun. But a, 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 in a very casual, sort of non-traumatic sort of way, a kind of zoning of his body has taken place. There's a part of his body which he thinks is great fun to touch, but which, which is in the mother's word, Schweinisch is very highly charged in German, much more than just saying piggish, which could just be, you know, um, uh, a, a, a childish um, play word or something in English. It doesn't carry the impact of disgust and repudiation that the word does have in the German. Um, so, so a relation is set up between the mother and a certain part of his body, and it's under a taboo, as it were. And it's a very casual sort of exchange, okay? Uh, but it sets up something, and I think it's a, a useful little didactic example, in a way, of the way in which the body ego is mapped and zoned and, and becomes gradually a self-representation, a self-representation in relation to the other. Okay. <coughs> uh, so it's, in that sense, it's a metaphor. Uh, 
right? It's, it's kind of based on uh, a, a, a relationship of likeness, similarity, um, analogy. Uh, but it is also a part of the larger whole. Uh, it's a metonymy. It's a part that stands in for the whole. Um, and I, th I think I explained that in seminars in terms of the standard uh, trope of um, referring to the institution of the monarchy as the crown or the throne, in which one item uh, stands in for, the, uh, for a larger complex. Okay. So the ego has this relationship of uh, of representation to the larger whole um, of which it stands in um, <coughs> and it performs certain functions for that larger whole. In particular it takes on uh, the self-preservative or instinctual functions. Uh, Freud and says and Laplanche would, would very much agree with that. The ego becomes as it were the representative of the uh, of the survival instincts if you like of the uh, of the human subject. Um, <coughs> though, as we saw with Freud's little metaphor of the horse and the rider, uh, as it were, the ego's attempt to manage <laughs> the whole um, is uh, often capsizes or is very problematic because the ego is not, it gradually discovers, is, uh, is not master in its own house. Um, now, what is this the other side, this, uh, this stuff that doesn't get translated, that drops out, okay. Uh, <coughs> and uh, a, a, another diagram, a, a very simple didactic diagram from the section on the drive, um, where Laplanche resituates the concept of drive in relation to his translation model. Uh, and it's, it, it's a very, again, a very simple one. Yes. <coughs> it's just uh, a straight arrow and then something peeling off or cur like that. Um, <coughs> and this is uh, self-preservation self or the instinctual. That stuff we are born with, which is part of our species equipment, if you like. Though, as we were saying, in the human being, this is this is pretty weak and needs constant support from the from the outside. Unlike other mammalian species, whose instinctual functioning is is more rapid and more uh, readily um, stabilized and functional than ours as a species. Um, and this is the drive, the trebe, the drive, which is essentially sexuality. Now, in Freud's account, um, <coughs> the relationship between the two of them, he uses the, the metaphor of leaning on. Uh, the drive, initially, in its very first moment, leans on the instinctual function, as in the oral, oral drive, the taking in of nourishment, uh, <coughs> generates as a sort of byproduct uh, this pleasure-seeking repetition uh, in the absence of hunger or of need, in which the infant um, just goes through this, the pleasurable sucking processes. Uh, and it's an autoerotic moment, a moment in which the infant turns around on its own body, starts sucking its thumb or its foot or, or whatever else other part of it it can in order to sort of pleasure itself and to repeat a pleasure. But this repetition is, not, is functioning not at the level of need, um, but at the level of... Uh, of a um, 
pleasure-seeking repetition. Now, <coughs> Freud tends to assume that this is a spontaneous process. It just is internally generated, as it were. Um, uh, and, uh, and there are moments where he registers uh, the possibility that that's not quite the case. I read out that passage, or I gave you that passage from uh, the third of the three essays, where he talks about the mother and the mother's role in uh, the awakening of the drives. Um, but it's at a purely descriptive level. It doesn't, he doesn't factor it in to his theoretical model. So his model is essentially that of this spontaneous um, as a, uh, uh, emergence of the drive as a byproduct from uh, ordinary, everyday, instinctual functioning, in this case, the taking of nourishment, etc., in through the mouth. Um, and Laplanche's argument is basically <coughs> that this does not happen spontaneously, that uh, <coughs> the, uh, the splitting off of the drive uh, and differentiation of the drive from ordinary instinctual functioning is a result of, he doesn't put this in, but I would try and insert it visually, can I do it? Uh, you know, there's an intervention that takes place from the other. In fact, it's a result precisely of that implantation of the enigmatic signifier on the body's surface, that the splitting off of the drive and its pleasure-seeking and autoerotic repetition is not something that just happens spontaneously, but is a response to uh, the enigmatic dimension uh, of what comes from the other. Okay. That exciting, puzzling, perhaps pleasurable, perhaps too exciting and, and therefore uh, unpleasurable uh, load of affect that comes with um, the adult's meeting of the infant's needs. Okay. That process of implantation, he calls it, um, <coughs> which meets the needs but deposits something else as well. Okay. Uh, so the, uh, the, just as the differentiation of the, e the ego as agency from the whole uh, <coughs> is a product of this implantation translation process, so also the differentiation of the drives uh, <coughs> is as well. Um, uh, and it, it's that drive, um, the term he uses here, he's, he puts it SO, which stands for a source object. In other words, an object that has come in from the outside, uh, prototypically in the didactic example that is standardly used, the, mother, mother, uh, the mother's giving of her breast for, for, for um, nurturing the child. Uh, this object that comes from the other, from the outside, <coughs> uh, is then uh, uh, leaves a deposit. Uh, the non, what is untranslatable? Uh, the the non-translatable remainder of that act of giving, the mother giving of her body to the infant in order to suckle it. Uh, <coughs> something drops out, uh, remains untranslated, uh, and that is, becomes a source. The source of what? The source of the drive. Okay? It stimulates, it provokes uh, this autoerotic uh, pleasure-seeking repetition on the part of the infant. So. <coughs> He's taken these term, two terms from Freud's theory of source and object, and source and object remain on two sides of a border. The source is internal and bodily in Freud. The object is what comes along and satisfies that uh, and relieves that internal tension. Um, uh, in Laplanche, the object is, is, a, is a signifying object as well as a, a need-meeting object, uh, and it's subjected to translation, uh, incorporation, 
uh, <laughs> and uh, and something that remains untranslated, uh, something that is repressed, because it's too, as I've said, too hot to handle, as it were. Uh, and that becomes the source of the drives. The drives don't just well up out of the body's functioning. The drives are the byproduct of this exchange between adult and infant. Okay, so it's a resituating of the concept of the drive uh, <coughs> uh, in, in terms of this intersubjective field uh, between uh, adult and infant and the way in which the adult and the, adult, the adult's feelings and unconscious impacts in a quite direct, exciting, primitive way on the body surface of the infant. Now, <coughs> I'm going to use that. So that's, uh, maybe I'll pause for a, a brief second and just, are there any questions people want to, or, or, uh, want to ask about what I'm saying here or what my exposition of what I think Laplanche is saying here? Um, particularly anybody who, uh, uh, and apologies again, who prepared a little intro to those sections uh, uh, and we didn't get round to it in the seminar. If you want to pose any queries or puzzles about what is being said here, what are the implications of being said here, then now's your moment to do so. Any, it, is a, it is complicated. You need to get your head around the way certain concepts function like this in Freud's theory and are repositioned and function differently in Laplanche's theory. Okay. Um, but it's worth making the effort, I'm suggesting. So any puzzles or questions or confusions that people want to voice? or comments. Silence. I've managed to silence you, have I? <laughs> now, who was going to do the introductions? Uh, Jess and Alice, do you have anything you want to, puzzles you want to raise or questions you want to raise? from? Well, okay, let me, uh, let me try and use this as a transition to um, <coughs> uh, the uh, saying something about Oedipus. Um, you may recall I gave you that Blake poem, and I read it out in the uh, lecture on Laplanche's theory. Uh, <coughs> it's a very powerful, but itself very um, puzzling symbolic allegory, uh, The Mental Traveller. Um, which begins with the birth of a child. If the child is born a boy, he's given to a woman old. She nails him down upon a rock and catches his shrieks in cups of gold. And a whole cycle is followed through. He turns into a bleeding youth. She turns into a, a maiden or a virgin bright. He binds her down in a repetition of the way in which he has been bound down. And the poem traces this cycle through a whole allegorical series of transformations until it comes full circle and it ends restating that same situation. Uh, now, you've got there an image of the impact, and a rather violent one. Um, she, it, it's, it's elaborated in a later stanza as she um, implants herself in all his nerves. Okay, <coughs> Blake says. So we've got there a, a, a powerful and indeed an extreme image of, of the adult's impact on, indeed he uses the same metaphor, I think, of implanting that, that, that Laplanche does um, in, the inf in the infant and the infant's body. Um, and we've got our example from Little Hands uh, of the mother 
trying not to be intrusive, invasive, um, uh, possessive, as it were, but nevertheless, as it were, marking the child's body and her very abstention, okay, as she thinks, from, from uh, uh, um, intruding on what might be a sensitive part of his body. Uh, now, there's, a, there's also an image in uh, Sophocles' play, Oedipus, that one could put with those two images. Um, <coughs> now, Sophocles is really not interested in child psychology. Okay? Um, uh, we don't get an account of baby Oedipus or his growing up or how he felt about Merope, whom he thought was his mother in Corinth, or how he felt about uh, Polybus, who he thought was his father over there in Corinth, as it were. Sophocles has no interest at that level in child psychology. Okay. So in a way, the play does not invite us to do a kind of standard psychologizing reading uh, of Oedipus exactly in, in the way that we might be familiar with, uh, or the way in which um, some commentators might have tried to do um, or complained about the absence of. But there is a very, very powerful image in the play of the, of the, of the infant, newborn Oedipus and, his, and what happens to him or what is done to him. Okay. And it's produced, first of all, in, that, in a very, very casual way in that long speech of, of Eucastus that I've asked people to sort of focus on as the first of three speeches in the, in, in the play. Um, and remember, she comes on stage, there's been a huge row between Oedipus and, uh, uh, and, and Creon. She's very distressed that the, at they're at loggerheads, or Oedipus is kind of threatening to have him executed. Um, uh, and she tries to sort of calm things down, uh, and he says, uh, he accused me, you know, he, he wound up or he used the prophet Tiresias who then accused me of being the murderer of the, of this, of the previous King Laius. Uh, uh, and, um, uh, and he's very upset and worried himself uh, uh, about it. And uh, she says, uh, uh, no, he was killed by a band of robbers, you know. Uh, at a place where three roads cross, you know, it's got nothing to do with you. It couldn't have been you. It was, you know, the, the report back of what happened was there was this band of robbers who attacked him in his train, uh, uh, and only one person survived to bring back the story of what happened. And it took place at a, at a place where uh, three, three roads cross. And of course, Oedipus is kind of stunned by this. Uh, uh, and what he's stunned by is the, that very, very bare but very suggestive description of where it took place, a place where, the place where three roads cross. That phrase is repeated a number of times in the play, and it marks out the place uh, <coughs> uh, in a very specific way. There's a scene, something takes place there at that scene. And he revisits that, and the play revisits what exactly took place at that scene again and again and again. Now remember, initially, he's not thinking about uh, the oracle that he received from, uh, from uh, uh, Apollo's uh, shrine at uh, Delphos. He's thinking about, uh, rather, the, the second message he's got uh, in response to the fever and the plague that struck Thebes, and which he, as a good and conscientious king, has sent to Apollo's oracle to say, what do I do about this? Please give me some help. 
and the message comes back is the, 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 the regicide who killed the previous king is living among you and that is a pollution that is contaminating the whole city and blighting its, the fertility of its women and of its fields, and etc. And so you must seek out this regicide uh, and uh, expose him and punish him if you want to cleanse the city of its pollution because you are under a curse. Uh, <coughs> and so he thinks of himself as looking for a regicide. You know? He's not thinking about um, the... Uh, the uh, prophecy that he'd re personally received about uh, that made him um, flee from Corinth and avoid his home city. So she just says, a place where three roads cross, and, and it really hits him. It sh but the very next sentence, the next line of verse, uh, is she says, uh, oh, and the child that was supposed to, uh, uh, you know, we received, a, we re the whole point she's making is that um, he was killed by a band of robbers, yet we had this, we had this oracle, you know, that was given us by the priests at Delphos uh, that said that, you know, we would have a son and he would murder his father. Interestingly, incest isn't mentioned by her. It's simply the, 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 the patricide, the killing of the father figure. Um, you know, um, but we cast the child out um, and his feet were bound together uh, and he was cast out to die on a mountain. And she just passes on. Right? So this is, it's just casually produced, but it's immediately produced in, relation, in relationship to and adjacent to um, her, her description of the place where three roads cross uh, and where uh, the group of robbers are supposed to have killed Laius. Okay. So it's quite startling juxtaposition in, in Eucastus' speech. So the infant's body, the piercing of the feet, uh, the binding of them together, uh, and, then, and they're given to a shepherd to cast him out and expose him on a mountain. And this was kind of, in a way, standard practice in the classical world. I mean, I don't think so much maybe the binding of the feet. I think that's very particular to Sophocles' account. Uh, but the exposure of children, the exposure of unwanted children, um, uh, either because they were just too many and, and the parents couldn't uh, afford to bring them up, uh, or because in some ways they were cursed or they were under a... Uh, they, they were felt to be um, under some sort of divine um, sentence of some kind. Um, so, and there were places where you left them. And what very often the hope was that some charitable person would come along and find them and look after them, etc. So child exposure uh, as a practice was you know, not uncommon in the classical world. Um, the piercing of the feet, I think, is quite specific to Sophocles. Okay. Uh, and he uses the word arthra, meaning joints, uh, and where we get our word arthritis from. Uh, okay. And that word is, as, uh, again, Gould's commentary is absolutely invaluable here. He picks up on, tells the English reader who doesn't have Greek, you know, the points at which this word is repeated uh, in the play. So this is double piercing, the piercing of the arthra of the, tooth of the infant's feet and his abandonment, his rejection, uh, his casting out by his parents. Um, this is then repeated um, uh, later on in the play where uh, Oedipus um, is, is, is uh, pursuing his investigation into what happened to Laios. And he wants to find out, were there, is it true? Were there, was it done by a band of robbers? Um, and we're told there's a, an old servant, the one survivor, and he's gone off and he's 
up in the hills somewhere looking after uh, tending a flock of sheep uh, on Mount Katharan. Um, so he's sent for. Uh, and I think um, Castor is ahead of Oedipus on this one. She sees what's coming and she tries to persuade him, look, forget it, just drop it. You know, don't keep asking questions, it doesn't matter. And he just thinks, oh, you're being snobbish. You know, you think I'm going to, uh, I, 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 I'm going to turn out to have been, you know, not a, from a princely house. Okay, this, and this is a response to the arrival of a uh, of the messenger from Corinth to say, your father's dead. And she says, see, you know, oracles, schmoracles, you know, who cares? You know, they they often turn out not to be true. You know, don't get hot and bothered about uh, uh, the whole thing. Um, but at a certain point, she start, when he starts saying, oh, well, actually, you don't, you, know, you don't need to be bothered because actually you weren't his son. In fact, you were given to me um, by a shepherd that I used to sort of spend time with. You know, he came from Thebes and I came from Corinth and we used to, you know, shepherd our, uh, our flocks in the same mountains. Um, uh, you know, so don't worry, you know, you're not going to... You know you, you, you know, you didn't kill Polybus, uh, and he wasn't your dad anyway, uh, and uh, Merope isn't your mother. And at that point, Eucasta, I think, knows, oh my God, <laughs> she can see what's coming, and she tries to persuade him to drop the whole thing. He won't, she, and she exits in a state, saying, this is the last thing I'll say to you, a miserable man, you know, you're cursed by the gods or whatever. She goes off, and as we later find out, to commit suicide. Um, and he's still... Um, uh, persisting, trying to find out what happened. Um, and the messenger says, yes, I found you, you know, your feet were pierced, pierced and tied together. And again, he, he says the same word, Arthra. Um, uh, and he says, uh, that's how you got your name. That's how you got your name. Uh, uh, you, were, you were named uh, after that. And in the Greek, as I said in the, uh, my email to you, um, Oedipus's name breaks down into two syllables. Um, <coughs> uh, Oedipus. Now, that first t um, part of his name, um, <coughs> he has already invoked and punned on himself when he's having his argument with the prophet Tiresias. Uh, and Tiresias is refusing to say anything, and, and, and Oedipus is understandably angry. You mean you know who killed Laius and you won't tell us? How can you betray the city like this? And he rages at Tiresias. And finally, Tiresias says, actually, you're the killer, you know, under enormous pressure and, and, and anger from Oedipus. Um, and, and, and Oedipus dismisses him. He says, oh, how could I at all trust or believe in your powers of prophecy? You know, you, after all, you failed to do anything when the Sphinx was here, when the Sphinx was posing her riddle. Uh, uh, you couldn't solve it. You, all with your divinations, your looking at the entrails of birds and your, your, your supposed power of prophecy, you couldn't, you couldn't solve uh, the riddle of the Sphinx and defeat the Sphinx. I did it, me. Uh, and he comes out in a lot of the line of Greek verse, ho, maiden, I think it's A-N, uh, Aidos, Oedipus, which literally means um, uh, I, nothing knowing, no foot. <laughs> okay, um, 
So by dub doubling the word uh, Oedipus with eidos, meaning no, you know, I who know nothing, ignorant old me, you know, and it's obviously being ironic here. Um, I solve the problem with my intelligence, with my nomos, the use of my human faculty, with your use of the, your supposedly divine powers, divinely given powers of prophecy. You couldn't do it. I did it with using my nous, my intelligence, my shrewdness. Uh, uh, so uh, me, nothing knowing, no foot. <laughs> and of course, in punning, on, actually he, he, he plays on both, both halves of his name, oid, oidi meaning from the verb to know, and pus meaning foot. Okay. And of course, the feet was what the riddle was about. The, the Sphinx was posing this, 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 this enigma to, and, and to whoever tried to come in or out of the city, um, and if they couldn't answer the riddle, she killed them. Uh, and the riddle was, uh, what is that creature which, uh, uh, which walks uh, in the morning on four feet, at noonday walks on two feet, and in the evening walks on three feet, and is feeblest when it walks on most feet? Is that its weakest when it walks on, on four feet or on most feet? Uh, and the, the, what rhymes there again and again is tetrapus, meaning four foot, dipus, meaning two foot, tripus, meaning three foot, oedipus. And so Oedipus is alluding to the riddle that he solved, okay, by, uh, by saying, calling himself, in effect, no foot, the one who knew about feet, okay. Um, and it's, it's, I think, presented by Sophocles and, 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 and traditionally, and I think quite, quite plausibly interpreted as an act of hubris uh, and of an assertion of uh, a kind of like a humanist rationality uh, that is meant to, uh, by Sophocles, to in some ways represent uh, the whole culture of the Athenian Enlightenment, which was, um, and particularly the whole tradition of philosophy, uh, which was calling into question and interrogating critically the myths of the gods, about the gods, uh, and um, uh, uh, claiming powers and privileges for the use of human reason. So, uh, and, and I think it was Hegel called Oedipus the first philosopher, and in that tradition of German continental philosophy, Oedipus is seen as a kind of, uh, as a, as a represent allegorical representative of the use of philosophical reason. Um, so a, a moment of, of pride on Oedipus's part. Little old me, little old no nothing, no foot, I solved the riddle, you were hopeless. Uh, uh, so he's, he's, he's dismissing Tiresias and his divinely sanctioned uh, insight or knowledge, as it were. Uh, but of course, <coughs> uh, that, if we hadn't already picked it up, and of course, you, you have to remember that the, this is not a uh, whodunit. The, the Greek audience knew the story. Um, they all knew what was to come. Uh, and so they're, what they're listening for is how that fate is to kind of be played out uh, in, on the tragic stage. Um, uh, so they can hear uh, and perhaps anticipate the pun uh, uh, that, that the, uh, uh, which is not that on knowledge, okay, but it's a pun on an, another Greek verb. Uh, I think it's spelled with a double E, to swell. And that's what the messenger does. The messenger comes and turns around the meaning of Oedipus' name by saying, that's why you were called, that's why you were given your name. That names you who you are, he says. Oidain. Uh, 
swell foot or swollen, the swollen-footed one. Okay. Um, <coughs> and indeed, Greek commentators have often said that uh, the whole uh, family line of which Laios and uh, goes back to an ancestor called Labdarchus, who was a, a, limping, a limping figure. So um, limping and swollen-footed and, and people who are maimed at the foot, uh, uh, there is this ancestral connection there, which again a Greek audience would have been aware of. So he thinks of himself as no foot, and what the messenger of Corinth says, you're actually swell foot. But don't worry, you're, you know, you, you know your, your, fa your father's dead, so you're not going to commit patricide, and you needn't be worried anyway, because he wasn't really your father. Uh, but, but, but he deposits this bombshell, okay? You, uh, that the, 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 the maiming of the infant's feet has, has given him his name and in a sense his identity. He is named. That names you who you are, uh, the Corinthian messenger says. So we have this sense of this Oedipus's body as being on the, on the receiving end of a kind of uh, violence that has come from the outside, whether it's the infant Oedipus, um, whether it's... Uh, <coughs> at different moments, uh, this act of violence is, 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 uh, is, is repeated uh, in different contexts. Uh, his encounter with uh, this old man in a chariot um, who, won't, uh, who tries to push him out of the way at the place where three roads cross, or again, um, what he then does in full knowledge and full consciousness to himself when he's discovered who and what he is, okay, where he, where he puts out his eyes. Um, and uh, again, very usefully, Gould comments on the fact uh, that, this, that, that Sophocles uses the same word, arthra, in a very unique way in, in, in Greek to, to refer not to the joints of the feet, but to the eyes, the arthra of his eyes. Which is, and people puzzle over it. Could this be you know, a scribal error or something? But as he says, this double blinding relates back to a series of double acts of violence done to Oedipus's body uh, in the course of the play or in the, in the course of his life, which is relived in the play. So uh, a, a kind of violent uh, marking, a traumatic wounding, double wounding of, of, the, of the tragic uh, protagonist's body uh, is something that the play keeps focusing us, uh, focusing us on. Um, now I want to say something at this point about uh, Freud's reading of, of, uh, of the tragedy and the moment in the development of his thought where he turns to Sophocles and Shakespeare's Hamlet and he thinks of them together, they're twinned in his mind, uh, Hamlet and, uh, and uh, Oedipus uh, and in, in all the excerpts I've given you uh, um, he, he no sooner mentions Oedipus than you know, Hamlet will come up as well. Um, and he sketches out a kind of uh, a, a reading of, uh, of both plays in the letter to Fleece, and then he elaborates that and rewrites that in uh, that section uh, uh, from uh, chapter 5, I think it is, uh, on typical dreams from the interpretation of dreams, where he gives him a fuller account. But, I mean, it's, he's not writing a literary critical essay. He's, he's thinking about two tragedies in order, in some ways, to help himself think through a moment of theoretical crisis or blockage in his own thought. And uh, where he first does this, or where we have a first um, evidence of it, is within three weeks, it is the letter to Fleece about Oedipus and Hamlet, 
is in October the 15th, I think, 1897, three weeks after a previous letter, which we also looked at, where he says, I don't think I believe my theory of traumatic seduction anymore because there are all these problems that, it, you know, that I can't solve in relation to the theory. Um, so <coughs> in the wake of his, um, and it is only a temporary one because he oscillates back and forwards, but in the wake of his first and, and, and um, partial or temporary abandonment, rather, of um, his theory of traumatic seduction, he turns to these two plays, uh, and, he, and, he, and he becomes really intensely preoccupied with these two tragedies. Um, and he's clearly thinking, uh, as it were, thinking, you could say partly thinking outside the box or trying to think outside the framework of his theory, using literature to do that. And he does that on a number of occasions in which, the mo um, in a moment of theoretical crisis, he turns to, to a literary, to aesthetic questions or to a literary, literary um, uh, um, texts that preoccupy him, as it were. Uh, we'll see another example of this next term, uh, towards the end of next term in uh, 1919, where Freud is reformulating his drive theory and, uh, uh, and bringing on stage for the first time the notion of the death drive. Uh, and he takes time off uh, to write an essay on the uncanny and the aesthetics of the uncanny, and he produces a reading of a great 19th century German romantic writer, E.T.A. Hoffmann, a reading of his novella, The Sandman. We've already looked at one of Hoffmann's novellas, um, but Freud gives a kind of uh, a, a reading of, of that. Uh, and it's, so it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a fascinating sort of double moment, 1897, uh, 1919, where at moments of theoretical crisis, uh, Freud turns to literature and starts thinking about literature. Uh, <coughs> as a way, uh, partly as a way through the crisis. Um, he does something similar with a text we'll be looking at next term, um, in, again in relation to the question of seduction, um, where he writes his uh, fascinating case study of Leonardo da Vinci, and he does a reading of some of Leonardo's paintings, and we'll be looking at that uh, next term as well. Um, so certain moments, art or literature become crucial uh, uh, in Freud's thinking, it's as if uh, it becomes internal to the development of his of his theory. Um, now, in in both the case of the two tragedies that we're looking at at this week and next week, and of uh, Hoffman's text, we'll be looking at next term. Freud chooses texts, or he seems drawn to, magnetized by texts that have a traumatic structure to them, uh, 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 which seem to be organized around sort of a process of traumatic repetition in which uh, a scene of trauma is uh, reframed, resignified, translated, if you like, um, uh, in a kind of almost compulsive way. He's drawn to texts that have that tra traumatic uh, structure. And he then gives an Oedipal reading of them, okay, both of the two tragedies and of Hoffman's novella. Now, I want to situate uh, the, the readings he gives of the tragedies um, in relation to this turning, first turning point in his thought, and in particular to the way in which Laplanche had um, both redescribed it and criticized it, that is to say, in terms of Laplanche's distinction, or actually Freud's distinction, which Laplanche takes up between the, the Copernican and the Ptolemaic, between a conceptual model that is centered on the other, just as in uh, cosmology, the Earth. Uh, isn't the center around which the universe moves, but is itself uh, merely uh, a, a, a dependent planet that circles around the sun in, in a localized solar system. 
uh, and a Ptolemaic model which had dominated um, uh, both European and uh, Middle Eastern culture for hundreds and hundreds of years, uh, where the Earth is the centre of, of the universe and everything else moves around the Earth. Um, and Freud had set up himself uh, and psychoanalysis in relationship to what he sees as the three blows to human narcissism and self-centering that science had given to, um, uh, to, to, to you know, challenged human narcissism. Now, Laplanche takes that up and kind of partly twists it around and, and, and uh, reapplies it back to Freud, as we saw. Um, that the, and he, he makes the, the very, uh, I think, telling suggestion that if Freud is his own Copernicus, he is also his own Ptolemy. In other words, within the field of psychoanalysis, uh, these two contradictory logics of decentering and recentering play themselves out in different texts, sometimes even in the same text uh, of Freud's. Um, now, this is the moment where Freud uh, um, moves from uh, his model of traumatic seduction to the beginnings. It's just the seed, the beginnings of his uh, developmentalist model of sexuality in general. And he says in a, in a suggestive phrase to Fleece in the letter, you know, uh, he wants to posit uh, a universal event in childhood, uh, the, the, the falling in love with the mother, the rivalry with the father, that configuration, which he finds in his, again and again, his clinical material and in his own personal self-analysis. And he wants to think about that and he immediately moves on to thinking about that's why we find Oedipus Rex so compelling a tragedy. And then he goes on to think about Hamlet as well, um, the puzzle of Hamlet uh, and Hamlet's paralysis and Hamlet's delay. Um, so his interpretation uh, of the tragedies replicates that logic of, as it were, um, <coughs> recentering. Uh, uh, that uh, is, is in the process of taking place uh, in his theory. And he says of the tragedy, he says, um, you know, it's often thought of as a tragedy of fate, um, and that's the form it's taken, um, where the action of the gods determines uh, the protagonist's uh, destiny. And he says, but that's not why it's so powerful. That's not why it continues to haunt uh, uh, modern people who don't believe in the gods, okay? Uh, and, and attempts to imitate Greek tragedy uh, uh, just haven't worked. Um, he says, why, what gives it its power is not it's the role of the gods and of the oracle and the divine uh, or demonic determination of human life, but the material in which it's played out, the material of patricide and incest. Because uh, everybody in the audience was once a budding Oedipus, and this play awakens uh, all that material again, um, and we find it kind of uh, disturbing or compelling or, or whatever. Um, and he simply sees the role of the oracle and of Apollo as being, he says, the externalization of an inner necessity. Okay, uh, it's simply a way of projecting outwards what is this inner compulsion, uh, which uh, impulses that are imposed on us by nature, he says. Um, uh, which are unavoidable and universal. Okay. Um, so the external agencies in the play are simply projections outwards of these inner Oedipus's inner impulses. 
and it's Oedipus's inner impulses that, as it were, uh, drive the action or drive the play. Or uh, and a standard objection people have made to Freud's reading is, well, well hang on a minute. Um, Oedipus is given this uh, warning by the oracle, and he does his best to avoid it. You know, instead of he avoid, you know, he had he comes from Corinth to Delphos to say, somebody told me that I'm not really the, ch the child of my parents. Please, Apollo, will you confirm or not this story? And he says, Apollo dishonored me. He didn't tell me, he didn't answer my question, but he gave me something else instead. He gave me this appalling. Uh, prophecy that I, I was fated to kill my father uh, and marry my mother. Uh, and so he avoids Corinth. He immediately sort of heads in the opposite direction. And what is he, the first thing that happens to him is he encounters this man in a chariot at a place where three roads cross who tries to push him out of the way and, and, uh, 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 and who strikes him down and he strikes back and, and kills the man. Uh, <coughs> so uh, in rebound from the prophecy, doing his best to avoid it, he uh, ends up enacting it. Okay? And if you think about uh, the parents as well, the same thing has happened with them. Right? They got this terrible prophecy, uh, and the first thing they did as soon as the child was born, it was a boy, uh, they pierced its feet and cast it out uh, in an attempt to, to avoid these sacrilegious and, uh, and uh, polluting um, uh, acts that would have been the con consequences of the child growing up, etc. And it's that very act that, as it were, makes Oedipus ignorant of who his parents are. Uh, and so people say, well, hang on, he couldn't have been acting on his Oedipus complex, his so-called Oedipus complex, um, in that case. Okay. Um, and Freud's response is to say, Oedipus's ignorance of what he's done and who he is uh, is simply the representation of the unconscious nature of these impulses. Okay. Oedipus's ignorance of what, of what he's done and who his parents are is a representation of the unconscious nature of these um, impulses. So what Freud has done, in effect, at the level of his interpretation of Greek and, then, and also Shakespearean tragedy, is to center the tragic protagonist on his own impulses. It's the impulses of Oedipus, which have been acted out, or in Hamlet's case, haven't been acted out, but have been repressed, um, that, as it were, uh, uh, drive and therefore explain um, the, the tragic action. Um, and the rest is just you know, a, a sort of allegorization or projection of those inner impulses. So in effect, he's collapsed uh, an external agency into um, Oedipus's own in, in, inner impulses. He's, in a sense, made a Ptolemaic interpretation, to use those two terms, uh, a, a Ptolemaic interpretation, which excludes or forecloses or, or marginalizes uh, the, the relationship to the other. And the other, in this case, is, is figured by the, this repeated word in the, in, in the play that Gould draws our attention to, the daemon. Uh, at key moments when Oedipus does things, we're told, you know, a daemon lunged or a daemon showed the way. Okay, so Oedipus does things, they're his actions, uh, but in, acti in, in performing those actions, some other force is at work. Okay, a force that comes to him from the outside and from the other. Uh, so that Freud's reading, while it acknowledges and sees a pattern in both plays, um, <coughs> make sense of it by centering it back on the tragic protagonist, instead of seeing how the tragic protagonist is himself decentered 
by his relationship to these demonic, or in Hamlet's case, spectral figures, ghostly figure of the father, uh, that, that hound him down or that haunt him in various ways in, in the two tragedies. As it, uh, <laughs> so that would, you know, um, using the Planches, um, uh, 180 degree spin uh, on, uh, on the Copernican Ptolemaic terminology, um, it, it would raise the question, uh, which at a theoretical level the Planck's work al always raises, is where is the other in this? Okay. How do these concepts of repression, sublimation, ego formation, the drive, how, how are they related to the intervention of the other? Position them in relation to the other. Uh, in other words, the, he, he insists his work insists on the Copernican dimension uh, at the level of theory, and I think it gives us a, 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 a prompt to uh, to ask a Copernic, the Copernican question in relationship to the interpretation of these two tragedies. Okay, uh, Freud points to a triangular pattern and uh, uh, centers it on the, the tragic protagonist, uh, but let, let, ha, we need to think about. How is the tragic protagonist decentered, okay, in the in in the process of the action of the of the two tragedies? Okay, so it's the, in a way it's the Copernican question at the level of literary interpretation. So the Planck's theoretical development, I think, helps us to try and recapture a certain dimension of the two tragedies that Freud's reading tends to sideline or to marginalise. Okay, let's stop there for the time being.